there are two words that are translated from the Greek New Testament into the English as word. They're the Greek logos and the Greek word rhema. Both of them mean word. We usually distinguish between them. Logos mostly refers to the written word of God, and rhema mostly refers to the spoken word of God. I distinguish between the two in this way. A logos is a rhema God gave somebody else. Let me explain. When the guys who wrote the Bible got it from God, it came to them as a rhema. When they put it on paper and gave it to you, you got a logos. Because when you get it direct from heaven, it comes as a rhema. But when you give it to somebody else, you can't give somebody else your rhema. Because when you give it to somebody else, it gets downgraded to a logos. Have you ever had it happen to you that you get a rhema from God? You know, God gives you a word and you're like, yes, that is it. I've got the answer. Thank you, Lord. You are jazzed. You get on the phone. You call your best friend. I got the answer. Listen to this. And you give them your rhema. And they go, praise God. (laughs) And you just want to slap them. (laughs) That's all you can say to the most precious word that could possibly be given right now. Remember, you got a rhema, they got a logos. from your home group leader. You can't get a rhema from a book or from a conference. The only way to get a rhema is direct from heaven. So I'm going to share with you this morning some stuff that came to me as a rhema, but I'm sorry it's going to come out as a logos. But sometimes the Holy Spirit sneaks up on us and even gives us a rhema while the Logos is being preached. So, how many would like to be surprised by the Lord this morning? Byron, has this ever happened to you where somebody comes after you, up to you after you've preached and they said, I loved it when you said that. And they, te- they say, and you go to yourself, I never said that. <laughs> Because the Holy Spirit's a better preacher than the preacher. So why don't let's open our hearts for the Holy Spirit to drop a rhema into our hearts even while the Logos is being proclaimed this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the oldest book in your Bible. The first book that was written in the Bible. It's a little bit of a trick set up because it's not the book of Genesis. Oldest book in your Bible, most ancient manuscript, is actually the book of Job. Come on over. We're going to start in the book of Job.
So understanding that Job is the first book of the Bible, the first mention of worship is in the book of Job. Happens to a guy who has everything come apart in one day. How many know it sometimes happens all in one day? He loses his livelihood, loses his donkeys, his camels, his oxen. Fire comes from heaven, burns up all his sheep. Little postcard from heaven. His servants are killed. A tornado moves across the wilderness, hits the house where his ten kids are having a party, and kills all ten of his children, and it all happens in one day. In Job's response, Job chapter 1 verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. This guy's amazing. He has no Bible. Remember, he's going to start it. He has no Bible. He has no precedent. He has no prophetic voices. Actually, quite to the opposite. And all he knows is the theology of the day. If you are righteous and serve God in uprightness, he'll bless you. And now his theology just gets washed away in one moment. He has no theology, no idea, no Bible verses. And all he has to hold to is the reality that he loves God. And he falls to the ground and worships the Lord. You don't find out if you're a worshiper on Sunday morning. You know, anybody can worship on Sunday morning. I mean, excuse me, we have got Holy Ghost musicians on the platform called Levites with the holy anointing on their life. The instruments of the Lord, the saints of God gathered in holy convocation, the song of the Lord rising up, the Spirit of God descending in the house. If you can't worship on Sunday morning, you're dead. of worship is not can you lift a hand on Sunday morning. The test of worship happens on Monday morning. When you go to work with those uncircumcised Philistines. (laughs) The test of worship happens when Everything gets pulled out from under you when life careens out of control, when your pain levels go on ten, when you don't have a theology for what's just happened, and now you you are tender, you are trembling, you are shaking. No one really seems to understand what will you do in that moment. And Job falls to the ground and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I remember a moment in uh, in my journey. I was in a very low place. And, and I, 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 was, I, I just said to the Lord, Lord, I, I don't know right now how to bless your hand. I don't know right now how to bless your works because what you've done in my life, it just hurts too much. But I discovered when I didn't know how to praise him for what he had done, I was still able to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because when I bless his name, I'm blessing who he is. I'm saying, I declare you are a faithful God. Don't see your faithfulness right now, but I declare you are faithful. I say you are a good God. 
don't really see it right now, but I'm coming after you until I see it. I declare you are a merciful God. doesn't feel very merciful right now, but I say you are a merciful God, and I bless the name of the Lord. And no matter how low you get, you can always say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. My understanding is it was the fact that Job was a worshiper that got him into this soup. And I don't have time to develop that. But I also believe it was the fact that he was a worshiper that brought him through the ordeal. Job parked himself on an ash heap and said, God, everything stops, and I'm coming after you until you talk to me. I can't figure you out right now, but I'm not going anywhere until you answer the cry of my heart. And Job prayed his way through the suffering unto God's intended end. Job's the only guy in the book who prays. Everybody else in the book talks about God. He's the only one who talks to God. Somebody says, well, he had a bad attitude. So would you. I've, I've discovered something. You can say almost anything to God and get away with it. When it comes from your heart. See, you need to learn how to complain right. If you complain right, he puts it in the Bible. <laughs> if you complain wrong, he kills you. So it becomes fairly important to know how to complain right. And I'm going to tell you. Here's how you complain to God. You get in your secret place and you shut your door. Get in his face and talk to him. He says, you talk to me, we'll work it out. What he doesn't have space for is taking it to your neighbor. and Or says, you got a problem with me? You come talk to me about it. We'll work it out. Come on over to Genesis now. Gave Genesis some bad press. We're going to try to redeem that. Genesis 3. When I... I, I've looked at the topic of suffering in the scripture in a very intimate way. I have looked at the cross. How many here love the movie The Passion? I, I watch it every Easter. Love that movie. So I'm, I'm a cross guy. I'm a suffering. I identify with suffering. I've looked at it carefully. But when we come to Genesis 3, we get a different angle on the cross. God is going to talk about the cross for actually the first time in the Bible, and he's going to address the cross from an eternal vantage, from a bird's eye view. Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the cross, not up close like you see it in the Passion, but from a bird's eye, eternal perspective. Here's what God says, and he's talking to Satan about the cross. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, referring to Christ, he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. 
the cross from an eternal perspective. Jesus bruised the, the head of Satan and Satan bruised the heel of Christ. Now, I promise you, when Jesus was on the cross with a nail in his hands and a nail through his feet, it did not feel like a bruising of his heel. It felt like every atom of his being was being pulled apart. Because it was. Same is true for you. When you're in the vortex of your trial, when that fire is on high, you feel like every part of your being is coming apart. But there is an eternal perspective that God wants to give you. If you will wait on the Lord and find eagle's wings to rise up in an eternal perspective, there's a day coming when you will see your trial through a different lens. You will look back on it and say, Oh, I took it in the heel, all right. But my adversary has been bloodied in the head. Beloved, as bloodied as Jesus Christ was by the cross, the head of the adversary was more bloodied by the cross than Jesus Christ. And God wants to use your trial to so bloody your adversary that he rose the day he messed with you. I would venture to say, I think the adversary rose the day he picked a fight with Job. I think if Job was to talk about it now, he'd say, oh, I took it in the heel, all right. But my adversary has been bloodied in the head. And ever since that showdown, the adversary has gotten a massive headache from good old Job because his life is empowering believers for every generation ever since. The enemy rused the day he crucified Jesus Christ because now he has been destroyed through the cross. And I'm contending for to overcome like we sang the song this morning as he overcame. I want to overcome so that the enemy will rue the day he picked a fight with this servant of God. May it be that I can walk in grace, that I can endure through suffering, that I can hold to his hand, that I can endure in love and in faith and come through this thing in such a way that, yeah, I took it in the heel, but my adversary is bloodied in the head. Come on over to Zechariah now. Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4, verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And notice the Spirit of God looking at that mountain that resisted the will of God. The Spirit of God doesn't say, What are you? The Spirit of God says, Who are you? Because many times the mountain in our lives that resists the will of God, it looms so large that it takes on a persona 
of its own. You can almost attach a name to the mountain that you face. Sometimes it even has a demonic energy associated with it. And so the Spirit of God says, Who are you, O great mountain that seeks to resist the will of God in my servant? You shall become a plain. Anyone here ever been to Denver? Anyone here ever been to Salt Lake City? Anyone here ever been to Tucson? Anyone here ever been to Albuquerque? Okay. All the towns I just mentioned, and I'm sure there's others. Denver is a classic illustration of what I'm about to uh, to talk about. When when you go to a city like Denver, it's built on this massive plain. And when you're on the plain, you have houses, highways, developments, businesses, banks, restaurants, industry, orchards, architecture, agriculture, business, education. You have stuff happens on the plane. You got millions of people. The thing is a buzz with activity because you can do stuff on a plane. And then in the case of Denver especially, you suddenly come to a mountain. Bam. It goes from plane to mountain. And when you hit the mountain, the highway stop, the businesses stop, the restaurants stop, the schools stop, everything stops. The population, the activity, it comes to a grinding halt. And now you got mountain. And you got that one mountain man up there, you know, the guy with the rifle in his pickup truck. But for the most part, everything stops. So the mountain represents wilderness. It represents uh, bleakness and aloneness and, uh, and difficulty. And the Lord looking at the mountain in your life, that mountain, that wilderness, that morbid, dark, lonely, uh, oppressive mountain in your life, God says by His Spirit, my design for your life is to take that mountain that resists the will of God and level it into a plain that will feed a generation with the goodness of God from your life. Beloved, there was a mountain that God turned into a plain. I'm referring right now Mount Golgotha. If ever there was a bleak, morbid mountain, it was Mount Golgotha where Christ was crucified and God took that horrible mountain of utter depression and, and, and just utter agony, leveled that mountain and turned it into a fruitful plain that now feeds an entire planet. How do you turn a mountain like Golgotha into a fruitful plain? I will tell you how. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How are you going to turn your mountain, sir, into a fruitful plain? Not by might, not by power, but it will be by the Spirit of God. And that's why we reach into His Spirit, draw upon His grace, and say, Lord, we will not relent until you bring this mountain down. And the very thing that sought to resist the will of God in my life, I believe you're going to bring it down, level it, turn it into a plane that will feed a generation with the goodness of God because of what you have done in my life. And I'll look back on it and say, Ooh, that was intense. I took it in the heel. Oh, that hurt. But my adversary has been bloodied in the head. Now, the Old Testament 
in the New Testament both launch with the identical same theme. We already talked about how the Old Testament launched the book of Job. The theme of the book of Job is enduring through suffering. You talk about a guy who faced a mountain. Job had a mountain in front of him. But because he endured through suffering, God leveled that mountain and turned it into a plain that is feeding every generation ever since. Come to the New Testament. The New Testament launches with the exact same theme. Quiz. What's the oldest book in your New Testament? Give you a hint. It's not Matthew. I'll give you another hint. It's the only book in your New Testament that mentions Job. Turn in your Bibles to the book of James. Book of James. If we had a chronological Bible, it would put James at the beginning of your New Testament. Chapter 1. Are you ready for this? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What a way to start the New Testament. I mean, Holy Spirit, couldn't you have done any better than that? James 1 verse 2, the toughest verse in the Bible. If you can do James 1 2, everything else is downhill from there. Count it all joy when your spouse comes down with cancer. Count it all joy when your child is in a car accident and hanging on for their life. Count it all joy when your house goes into foreclosure. Count it all joy when you lose your job. Count it all joy when your spouse divorces you. Count it all joy when your daughter gets pregnant out of wedlock. Count it all joy when you have a heart attack. I'm having a problem with the verse. If the verse had said, count it all depression, I'm there. I get that. Just to be honest with you, my number one struggle in in this valley, whatever you want to call this uh, affliction, my number one struggle has been with depression. Never had a depressed day in my life until this happened. Had a pretty happy upbringing. And I used to think, you know, when people struggle with depression, they just needed to repent. And then I found myself in hand-to-hand combat with this multi-headed monster called depression. So if the verse had said, count it all depression, I get that. Holy Spirit says, count it all joy. Well, when you're fighting the battle of depression and just trying to breathe every day and stay above that thing, joy is one elusive thing. 
So joy has been really the one of the primary things I've been pursuing. Finally, I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, time's up. I'm not getting the verse. You have to give me James 1 verse 2. Something is not connecting for me here. Come on to the next verse. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, actually a better translation than patience, a more accurate word for our contemporary language would be the word endurance. So, if you'll allow me to substitute that word, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance is, I'm about to give you a definition of endurance based on James 1 verse 3. Taking the verse apart, endurance is, are you ready? Endurance is faith sustained over time in the midst of trials. I'm going to say it again. This is a definition, just taking James 1 verse 3 apart. Endurance is faith sustained over time in the midst of pain. When you're in pain and you do whatever you have to do to stay in faith, in the Word, in prayer, in fasting, laying hold of promise. And yes, I understand. I know what it's like to be a roller coaster. I've mastered the art. But pursuing God and saying, God, I'm coming after you. I have got to stay in faith when you hold to promise and hold to his word and stay in faith over the long term. That's what the Bible calls endurance. Endurance isn't just kind of holding on by your fingernails and coping with life. Endurance is holding on to his word, holding on to faith, on to promise, enduring in faith over the long haul. When you endure like that, endurance, biblical endurance, is so powerful. Come now to verse 4. It has the power. Look at this. And let endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Endurance has the power to do in your life what nothing else can do. Endurance has the power to so transform you that you come through the thing perfect and complete, lacking nothing, lacking nothing in faith, lacking nothing in the knowledge of Christ, lacking nothing in intimacy, lacking nothing in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, lacking nothing in the gifts of the Spirit, word of faith, word of healing, uh, working of miracles, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy, discerning of spirits, lacking nothing in righteousness, lacking nothing in holiness, lacking nothing in good works. Start making your list. What does it look like for someone to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing? The list doesn't quit. It's altogether glorious. I said, Lord, could it be that you have designed a trial in my life that if I will endure in this thing, my trial becomes an invitation to endure in faith that I might come through the thing perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Yeah, I took it in the heel, but my adversary takes it in the head, and a mountain is leveled into a plain that feeds an entire generation. God, could it be that in your kindness you designed a trial that would bring me into perfect and complete, lacking nothing? So 
never was perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's the right answer. So how does a guy who is perfect and complete, lacking nothing, handle trials? Well, if the boy is dead, you just go over and put your hand on the carcass and raise the boy to life. Ruin a normal funeral. And if you don't have food, you just multiply five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people. And if you run out of wine, you just fill up six pots with water and turn the water into wine. And if you don't have tax money, you just send somebody down to the lake, put a hook in the lake, pull up the first fish, open the fish's mouth, pull up the coin, and pay the tax. Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Could it be that if I will endure in this trial and hold to faith, abide in his word, abide in prayer, abide in his love, could it be that his intention for my life is to be so transformed in this crucible that I come through it perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I realized James 1 verse 4 is the fattest promise in the Bible. Dare you to find a fatter? You might be able to find an equal in Ephesians 3, filled with the fullness of God, but matches it pretty much. But I don't think you'll find a bigger promise in the Word of God than perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then I realized the toughest verse in the Bible is parked right next to the fattest promise in the Bible. And if you don't see the fat promise in verse 4, you get tripped up with the tough verse of verse 2. But when I saw the promise of verse 4, guess what happened? Joy. What's this? I haven't felt that one for a while. That's kind of, yeah, this kind of, I like that. And joy began to touch my spirit because I realized I am on a track with God. By His grace, I am going to endure in this thing. I think I'm on an ancient path or something. Something about Job and Abraham and Joseph and David and, you know, some of those here, I think I'm on an ancient pathway here. I think God did it with them, and I guess he's still the same today. Okay, so I'm going to endure in this trial by gold in the fire, and by the grace of God, if he will help me by his grace, that I might overcome as he overcame. And yeah, I took it in the heel, but the head of my adversary is bloodied because I endured through suffering. There's an expression going around in America these days. It's almost become like a, an American idiom or whatever. How many have ever heard this one? Insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. It might be true in some cases, I'm sure it is, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's mostly not true. Because when it comes to the kingdom of God, God calls you to do something, and do it, and do it, and just keep doing it, and just keep doing it. 
in the world calls us insane. Okay, like you've been waiting on God for how long now? Uh, 17 years. Okay, well, what's changed? Uh, nothing. Then they said, do something different. Beloved, I'm not changing a thing. I'm going to endure in the Word of God. I'm going to endure in prayer. I'm going to endure in fasting. I'm going to endure in His love. I'm going to endure in holiness. Endure in good works. Endure in righteousness. Endure in His heart. And I'm not changing a thing. Call me insane if you want to, but I'm holy to a God who happens to interrupt human history and do in our lives what we cannot do for ourselves. The world calls you insane because you just keep on abiding in the Word, abiding in the Spirit, abiding in prayer, enduring in fasting, enduring in good works. They're looking at your life like, what are you about? And if you don't think I'm telling you the truth this morning, just try it out. Go to work tomorrow and tell your co-workers, I'm waiting on God. Give it a shot. They will look at you like, what planet did you just arrive from? Because they look at us and call us insane. But beloved, we have got our hand wrapped around a promise from God. We've got his holy word. And now we are enduring in suffering because we have a hope in our spirit that he is doing something in us that is so powerful we will come through the trial perfect and complete lacking nothing I'm not coping I don't even like that word cope it's not a Bible word it's not a biblical it I don't even like the way it comes off your tongue it just kind of spits out of your mouth cope I'm not coping. The world copes because they don't have a promise. But we've got a promise from God. Beloved, I'm not coping and trying to just maintain my sanity till I can, you know, get on the other side. I am enduring in suffering, enduring in hope, enduring in, the pr in prayer, enduring in fasting. And I'm holding to his hand and I believe there's coming a day when he will step into my war zone, say to that mountain, you are coming down and the mountain will be turned into a plain and a generation will be fed because I endured through suffering. So I, I kind of graphed the thing out in my mind. I'm looking at this. Okay, perfect and complete lacking nothing. I, in my mind, I graphed it out because I feel, Andy, you know, I've been on this journey with God for 17 years. It's been real intense. And in some regards, I feel like I've been on a fast track with God. Like He's been accelerating stuff in my life. And, and, and so, it, it, you know, just the, the, I mean, the Lord's been changing me in, in dynamic ways. And so I charted it out in my mind. If you can kind of see this this curve with me, okay? I charted it out. If I continue to be changed by the power of God at the rate he's been changing me the last 17 years, if he continues to work in my life at this rate, I will attain unto perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I'll get there in about 463 years. And I got depressed all over again. 
realize. James 1 verse 4 actually carries a promise in it. The Lord is saying, If you will endure through suffering, I will interrupt your trajectory. I will interrupt your journey and do in your life what you cannot do for yourself. And God will come to you. He will visit you. He will come in His power and in His glory. He will enter into your journey and do in you what you cannot do for yourself. Beloved, it's a setup for an encounter with the glory of God. I am headed for an encounter with the Almighty. I'm going to see Him with my eyes. I am going to behold His glory. And with that hope in my scope, I will never relent. I will never back down. I will never give up. I'm going to keep on coming after you. Lord Jesus, I'm going to endure in your word. I'm going to endure in prayer. I'm going to endure in fasting. I'm going to endure in good works. I shall never relent. I shall never back down. I shall never be discouraged by the grace of God because I am headed for an encounter with God Almighty. You can see it, James 5. Come to the last chapter of James. James chapter 5. James talks about it. Verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. God brought Job's mountain down, not because Job was a super saint who crossed every T and dotted every I. He brought Job's mountain down because Job endured in love. He didn't walk it out right, but he did it in the face of his God. He came after God, loved God with all his heart, and endured through the suffering. And God brought the mountain down. That's why James says God is very compassionate and merciful. If it depended upon us crossing every T and dotting every I, we would never enter into our inheritance in Christ. But Christ enters into the thing with us in his mercy, in his compassion. He comes alongside us in our brokenness and says, if you'll just love me in your pain, if you'll just set your eyes on me, I will redeem this thing. I will bring that mountain down, turn it into a plain, and you will look back on it and say, oh, I took it in the heel, but my adversary is bloodied in the head. God has an intended end for your journey. And beloved, I stand before you as a man who has been walking a journey in God for 17 years. Somebody says, well, 17 years? Aren't you about ready to give up? Give up? I've invested 17 years of endurance into this thing. You think I'm about to give up now? Oh, I'm gone. I'm over the edge on this one. If for no other reason, just sheer curiosity. <laughs> what can God do with someone who walks in holiness through the pain long term? I've got so many verses in the balance. I'm just downright curious. What, how can God finish somebody's story? I'm going to endure in love.
trust to his mercy. I have all my cards on his compassion. He will visit me. Now I'm really talking about you this morning. As you endure in your suffering, as you hold to promise, stay in faith, never relent, God is going to interrupt your trajectory, visit you with his glory, make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and give you a testimony to feed a generation from the goodness of God in your life. The crucible in your life, could it be an invitation to the most powerful transformation possible? Yeah, you may take it in the heel. But by the grace of God, Lord Jesus, I am asking for my the head of my adversary to be bloody. Can I be blunt with you? When you have done hand-to-hand combat with spirits of infirmity, you don't simply want to have a healing from your infirmity. You want to take on a few other spirits of infirmity too. And I've got a few buddies in prison with, in prison with me right now. And when you get out of prison, if God gives you the authority like he gave to Joseph, see I got a theory. When Joseph got out of prison, I think he let some of his buddies out of prison too. Because once you've done prison time, you got a few buddies in there. When you got the authority, some of his buddies came out of prison as well. And I'm asking God, Lord Jesus, would you bloody the head of my adversary? My adversary are spirits of infirmity and affliction that seek to incarcerate God's people under a mountain of depression and hopelessness. I've battled that thing and I am after not simply my own release but for the release of the captives of the body of Christ and I am asking our Father that I would look back on this someday and say Oh, I took it in the heel, but my adversary is bloodied in the head. Is there anyone in North Carolina that will lay hold of the word, lay hold of the spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, and walk a journey with God, enduring through suffering, and obtain a prize that will feed a generation, and the enemy will rue the day that he picked a fight with you because you decided to endure through suffering. We want to stand in prayer with anyone that you want prayer this morning. Or Andy's going to come and Joel will will minister with me. We'll have others here that will minister as well. And I'm going to let Byron take the microphone now. But we want to agree with you. Strengthen the hands that seek to, that want to fall down. Those weak knees that want to crumple. That you might be strengthened in your journey to endure through suffering. That you might be made perfect.